Welcome back to Path to Glory, the Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. My name is Mark Bro, and I am joined by my co-host, George, a.k.a. Kairos. How are you today, George? I'm doing well. Doing very well. A little bit hungover, if we're being honest. Had a little bit of a wild Saturday for your birthday then? Yeah, I was very fortunate to have one of my good friends in town this weekend. They took me out to dinner. And, you know, the wine must flow. Wine for the wine god. Glad you were able to get back on your feet for this morning. And we are very excited today to be joined by a special guest from Italy. Daniel, welcome, Daniel. How are you today? Hello, hello. Welcome to everyone. I'm fine, thank you. I'm not in hangover, <laughs> but I'm feeling good the same. That's good to hear. We're going to need you sharp today because we have all kinds of questions for you concerning your trip to the Austrian Masters event. And we're very excited to talk to you today. And we're glad to have you on. So welcome. It's a pleasure for me as well, because I'm a, a listener of your podcast. And sometimes uh, you make me company going to work. So it's a pleasure for me. Well, that is wonderful to hear. And we're glad to finally have you on the podcast. We always appreciate our longtime listeners. Speaking of which, we want to give a thank you, of course, to our patrons uh, on Patreon. If you'd like to support us on Patreon at Path to Glory Podcast, that's very much appreciated. But we always appreciate the listens and the follows on Spotify, which is our new podcast home. And we actually, as of yesterday, I think I checked, we're above 55 star reviews on Spotify for the podcast. So thank you very much for listening. And we are trying to get to 100 this year. So please help us out if you are enjoying the content and rate us on Spotify. That would be much appreciated. If not, we always appreciate just the listens and the follows. And we're happy to engage with you guys on any suggestions you might have going forward for additional content. We will also have some poll quizzes available on Spotify. I've noticed those are getting a little bit of traction as well. And uh, we've been enjoying engaging with you guys on those too. Our next segment here is Path to Worlds. So very briefly, nothing much has changed as far as US events for qualifying to the World Championships of Warhammer in Atlanta. The Las Vegas Open is actually coming up as of recording this in a few days, January 18th to the 21st. So that one, obviously, if you've already not made plans, you're probably not going at this point. But good luck to those going to the Las Vegas Open. I know Zach will be representing Path to Glory out there. And we're, of course, wishing him the best of luck on his Path to Glory in Las Vegas. The Cherokee Open is also coming up in February from the 24th to the 26th as another qualifying event in the U.S., followed by Adepticon in March from the 20th to the 24th. Uh, and then the next one, and I don't know if we've had official confirmation on, but we do expect it to be a qualifying event, is the Nova Open from August 28th to September 1st. We'll, of course, continue to update this list as we get more and more information and more qualifying events are scheduled. But we do want to make sure all of our listeners have the best opportunity to qualify for Worlds. And hopefully Aman and I, and possibly also George and Zach, can see you there. That's definitely my plan. Uh, and maybe Daniel will be able to join us as well. I don't know. What did the qualifying event situations like around you, Daniel? Are there a lot available in Europe at the moment? I know that there is one for sure in Paris in May, something like this. And maybe one in Lyon in February. And obviously one in Nottingham at the Gibo main headquarters. And I don't know if we are going to host uh, something uh, in Italy as well. Because we tried the last year, but no one answered our call. So we will try again this year. 
I'm more a championship player than a Nemesis player, but the game is the same. So I am, I like to play also Nemesis sometimes. So why not to host an event also in Italy? It would be nice. Well, yeah, hopefully you guys can get some qualifying events out in Italy. Are you planning to attend in Paris or Nottingham yourself? I don't think so, uh, because I have a lot of stuff to do in the spring for, for my job. And I already need to take a week for the World Team Championship in Warsaw at the end of May. And then Paris, I think that it would be more or less in the same period. So Paris uh, is a uh, for me. But who knows, maybe during the summer, during September. Last year, there was one in Bratislava, for example, which is not so far from Italy. And who knows, maybe. We hope that you guys can get some more events out there and we hope to see you at World the World Championships in November. It will be a pleasure, for sure. Our last housekeeping segment, I'm actually going to turn over to George here, is our Inspiration Strikes. So for those who haven't listened to the podcast before or it has been a while since we've done one of these, for our Inspiration Strikes segment, we put one minute on the clock and we're going to allow George in this case to talk about whatever Underworlds related or not that is really with him right now and really something he wants to get out into the community. So George, I'm going to put one minute on the clock. I'm going to give you a countdown and then we're going to let you let you go for your minute. So ready, set and go. All right. Well, what I would like to talk about is negativity and how we as content creators can influence the people our listeners, people who play this game. I think that there's been some releases that we're a bit negative on, and our opinions are valid. I definitely think my opinion is valid, but everyone else's opinion is valid too. And I really want to see, I want to give people a reminder that they can get out there and prove us wrong. If I'm wrong about something, please prove it. Don't just take things I say as gospel or any of us. You know, I mean, I, I don't think I'm inherently better than anyone else at this game i'm on a podcast that doesn't make me better playing the game a lot thinking about it a lot makes me good i think but get out there if there's something i think is bad and you think it's good say so and then do so and prove me wrong i would love to be proven wrong about the stab lads i would love to see more people engaging i think that i'm always very surprised when time george I'm out of time. Got the always surprises me. I know, the one minute's always tight. I'm considering increasing the length of this segment going forward. So we'll have to talk to Amon about it. But I, I like the content here, George. Having, as community content creators, we are giving most often like very hot takes. I mean, we do get review content ahead of time, but it's often not so far ahead of time that at least I personally get a chance to test a lot of this stuff out. Uh, I can theory craft it. I can look at it and I can write up an article. But... There's always going to be stuff that we miss or angles we don't quite land on. Like even my Void Cursed article, I don't know that I was super negative on the deck, but I don't think I realized how much potential it had at the time. So hopefully if Stab Lads are that warband for you guys out there and you're listening to us and you're like, yeah, I think they're missing this, this, and this, go out, win an event with them, come on the podcast, talk about them, and, and we'll be happy to be proven wrong. I think if, the, if stuff is overperforming our expectations, certainly nobody here is going to complain. Uh, any thoughts from you, Daniel, on overall kind of community content? Yeah, I agree what what you say because sometimes, especially on on the internet, it's easy to fight to to, to see people fighting uh, against the same uh, argument. 
But if I'm a new player and I log to Discord and I see people uh, arguing each other in a negative way, I might be discouraged in playing uh, this game. So negative things and negative feelings are not good for, for anyone. And on the other hand, Debating is a good thing because debating evolves the knowledge of the game of everyone. So between debating and fighting, there is a, a big a big difference. That's very well said and a good point. When people enter our, our community, we want them to see the online equivalent of a smiling face, right? We don't want them to be thinking this is just another toxic gaming community because I really think that the Underworlds community is, is better than that, much better than that. I've had very positive experiences with everybody I've interacted with. And we just want to make sure that translates online where you don't have that face-to-face and you can't really see a person's intent as much as all you're seeing is just the text on the screen. So really good point there. And thank you for that segment, George. I appreciated your insight. uh, And hopefully the rest of the Underworld community follows suit. If I can only add the uh, uh, one uh, one thing, I agree with you that the uh, underworld community is uh, way better than other community because I played some other games in the past and uh, I think that the underworld community is uh, really way better and uh, we have to keep this uh, characteristic uh, even in the future. Well, that's an excellent segue because we're about to get into the meat of today's topic, which if you guys have looked at the episode title is just our interview here with Daniel for the Austrian Masters Tournament. So the first topic I wanted to discuss actually was you, Daniel. What is your tabletop gaming experience, starting with if it wasn't Underworlds, how you got into Underworlds, of course, but like what other games have you played? And you've mentioned some of the other communities that you've you've known or been a part of. Well, I started playing Magic when I was a child. And then I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. And then I discovered Warhammer Fantasy Battles at a um, gaming convention in Modena. It was 22 years ago. And I've been playing Warhammer Fantasy Battles for years with friends, traveling a lot around Italy. In Italy, there was a very big community of fantasy players. And that was a quite good environment because 90% of the people were kind of people and very competitive people, but also kind people. And I like it a lot. And I stopped playing uh, whatever fantasy battles after the end times when the game workshop closed the game. And a lot of other players moved to Ninth Age, which is the uh, custom homemade version of whatever fantasy battles. But I, I didn't like it. Uh, so I stopped playing uh, for, for a while. I played other games for Blood Bowl, for example, for a while. And uh, Warzone. Warzone is a Shifai uh, war game. And then um, during another convention in Modena with my friends, we were impressed by this new game, which was Warhammer Underworlds. And we decided to try it and buy it. Uh, it was, I think, uh, half the season of uh, Shetspy, so the first uh, season. The game was amazing. And I I, I felt like something was missing in my gaming life and Underworld closed that gap because I had, again, something to play with my friends, but to go to tournament again, to build a list, a deck list in this case. So it was very exciting uh, for us. Before pandemic, the game was very, very popular in Italy. And even where I live, 
we organized tournament of 20 and 30 players only uh, in our local area. Now things are a bit different because after the pandemic, the game is getting smaller. All of my friends that started the games during Shets while they stopped. So I'm the only surviving. But I find new, new friends, new players, uh, new teammates. And, and so it's not a problem because I have other friends, uh, new friends, uh, other players to play against right now. That's one of the best things of going to tournament and going to events. It's uh, meeting a new player. Uh, that player can become uh, your friends and you build a, a connection between them. For example, Alessandro is one of the members of our What I'm Around the World team. He's living in Rome and a bit far from where I, where I live. But we meet each other at least six or seven times during uh, the year because we, we go to international event uh, together. When uh, he hosts an event in Rome, uh, we came. And when we host some event here in Ravenna, in Forli, he came. So it's and not only for the tournament. Every time it's two, three or four days together. So I go drinking, go parties, something. So it's not only, it's not only about the world and around the world. It's about a new friendship, new, a new, a new step in, in my life. That's very, very well said. I've made a lot of friends through gaming, through tournaments, and it's always nice to, to meet new people. So I am curious, I know you talked about this a little bit, but in your area, what's the relative difference between champ and nemesis? You know, who plays more of what? You mentioned you're a champ player. Do you have a good scene for that, but you play nemesis too? Yes, we, right now, we are unlikely a bit uh, split between two different communities because uh, some people play 90% of nemesis and some people play 90% championship. We were playing uh, championship until the next year. Then in the 2023, uh, some things changed and some communities moved to Nemesis and some communities remain on the championship area. And for me, it's fine because I can, as I told you, I can play uh, both, uh, both formats, even if I prefer one. But some people of the two uh, communities are um, a bit, it's like a religious war. So I can only play this or I can only play that. And that's not good because we are not 100 active tournament players anymore. And uh, splitting into smaller group is not healthy for, for anyone. But that's how the situation uh, is. I'd like to echo the sentiment that just because you prefer championship, I think all three of us actually today are championship first type of players. But even if you prefer one over the other, I think supporting your local events is is probably the more important thing to do than supporting a particular format in this case, because we are trying to get the game back to the numbers we were seeing pre-pandemic. And certainly Nemesis has, I mean, I think undeniably a lower barrier to entry, although not quite as low as it's been previously, given the removal of universal cards from the warband releases and things like that that George have talked about previously. I think those are great improvements both for Nemesis and for Championship. So uh, I'd certainly encourage people on either side of that line to just dip their toes in, try out either format that they're not currently playing much of, uh, and just keep growing that local scene. And who knows, maybe your preferred format will be the one that ends up being the kind of dominant one in that scene. But at least getting out, playing some Warhammer Underworlds games, meeting people, that's really the big thing and getting this community to grow and, and kind of 
get the game thriving again. I think we're kind of on that track, but we're still in the very first baby steps of getting there. So going on from the kind of background info, I think we can start getting more into the meat of the tournament itself. So of course, this is championship format. I assume best of three. Is that correct, Daniel? Yeah, it's, uh, it was a best of three tournament. With day one uh, uh, with the Swiss round of score again, and then the top eight uh, for the second day, uh, quarterfinal, semifinal, and the uh, finals, uh, everything uh, best of three in the championship. Do you know how many players attended the Austrian Masters event? Yes, they have only 20 seats, and we were 20. They didn't expect uh, to fill all the, all the seats, and they say that next year they can have more, more space. Because it was not only a Warhammer Underworld event, it was a bigger event. All the Austrian Championship for Age of Sigma, 40k, Blood Bowl, and uh, Kill Team also. So it was a big area with a lot of games, a lot of players, and that's why they have only 20 seats for, for this year. But this is the kind of stuff that I love because it's like playing in the Olympic Games. So not only your game, but also the other game. So if you finish your game earlier, you can take a look at other players, other games, and then you can have lunch together. So it's really an amazing event. And I want to say thank you to the organizer. And to the TO of our event, but not only the TO, also all the organizer organizing team because everything went perfect and they did really a, a good job. So congratulations. And I hope that they're going to do event like this even in the future because we, we love, we love it. That's really great to hear. Really, really exciting. And I, I do like to hear that the trend is up. I know you mentioned that after the pandemic, things got a little smaller, but we see this pattern in the US too. I think the game is recovering. It is rebounding, it is growing again, and I can only hope that it continues to grow bigger every year. Yeah, the, the good part of it is that there is, a, at least in Europe, an international community. So we met uh, uh, at each other tournament. Uh, I said that we were 20, but we uh, were from uh, five different nations. There was one player from France, two from Poland, some from Czech Republic. We were four from Italy, even if one is an Italian, but living in Austria and the other player were from Austria. And we, we met two or three or four times during the, during the years to each other events. And that's a, a very good thing because having an international community is another way to expand your point of view, to meet new friends, as I told before, even outside uh, Italy. And uh, playing outside your country, it's a good opportunity to see other kind of decks, other kind of warbands, under other kind of playing the same deck and the same warband, and uh, having a new idea and try to steal an uh, idea from the others. So it's exciting. I think that's something we discussed previously on the podcast, like the difference between local and international metas. And it's sometimes shocking what warbands are doing well in different parts of the uh different parts of the world compared to what you see locally, how they play those war bands. We'll get into your deck list shortly as well, but certainly something that we might not see as much, at least personally, in, in my local meta in the U.S. in terms of the war band choice and the deck construction that you've paired here. So 
excited to get into it and get your thoughts and hopefully expand the more international reach of the podcast from just the narrow view of a bunch of Americans <laughs> today. So speaking of which, let's get into your choice for the tournament. So why don't you tell everybody what you were playing and why you decided to pick that warband? And of course, if there was some influence from the end of your game updates, if you could highlight what those are as well. Okay, first of all, I want to say that we were playing with the new limitation. So this destroyed my previous plans because I was playing um, another warband with another deck for weeks. And I felt uh, that I was very confident with this warband because I lost only once and uh, I, I thought that it was the best choice for me at that time. I'm, I'm talking about the Wolfspotter, so Nargo, the Nargo boys. Even if I never, I never draw Avalanche in my first hand, even Mulligan, the five cards, I never draw Avalanche, but they were so solid. A lot of pings, inspiration in the first two or three activations and uh, solid glories. I really love that deck, but with the new limitation, it's impossible to have that solid deck again. So I had only three or four days to decide uh, what bring to the tournament. And then I, I decided to use something uh, very solid that we used in, uh, in Warsaw after an alien seventh, uh, in, uh, October. And, uh, my choice is a uh, Sepulchre Guard. The, the history of this deck is, um, is uh, that in, during the last uh, Italian national championship, there were two players in September using the Sepulchre Guard with different lots, one with uh, Filson Fortress and one with Voikros Strals. And they reached the quarterfinals, so they, it's very good. I was playing against one of them, and we thought that uh, Sepulchre Guard uh, are good because we didn't expect that they reached the quarterfinals. And then, as I told you, we were preparing the Alliance tournament in Warsaw and we were looking for a controlled warband, a warband that doesn't steal any cards from the other two warbands because, because I know that now the Alliance format is not a format, an official format anymore. Maybe you, you remember what I'm talking about. So the Alliance format is having three different warbands, three different players, and you cannot duplicate cards between the three decks. So we need uh, one warband to have a control deck. And so why not to take that idea and try to make it better? We changed some cards. We had some real gem, for example, shoulder chart. That was really an amazing card. And in the previous season was even better than now because you you could use it during a super action. Now you can't. But, uh, and then Alessandro, one of my teammates, took the uh, Sepulchre Guard for the tournament. He lost only the first game and then he won the remaining six. Uh, and then we realized that uh, this deck, okay, it's uh, amazing. Why not use it, use it uh, even uh, in the future in some uh, tournament? And then Alessandro was not uh, using the Guard in Vienna. And then why not use Sepulchre Guard myself? And then I, I do a couple, I, I do a couple of games with that, with that warband. And then I decide to, to take it. The whole idea of the deck is to never attack, always moving or raising someone and to play longboard. It may be strange, but playing longboard is the warden is safer on the, and the warden is 50% of the warband. And you just need one objective token in the opening, on the opponent territory 
that uh, can be easily to, to reach. So in the first hexagon, in the second hex. Uh, and uh, then if you are able to run with one or two warriors over the opponent's wall of uh, warriors, then you can win the game because you force your opponent to split forces or to make mistakes or to think what to do. So it's a situation during the first game, usually your opponent don't know what to do because it's overwhelmed by the number of pushes, raising scars, confusion, their distractions. So everything is happening and you don't know what's happening. That's the first impression that I had when I play against this, this deck. What's happening? Why, why I'm losing this game? I'm killing fighters. <laughs> every, every, every round I'm killing fighters, but why I'm losing this game? And I like this deck because it's like playing chess. And you don't rely on dice rolls because you don't attack at all. I think that in the tournament, I attack only three or four times in the whole tournament. And you know that uh, at least two thirds of the times uh, of the attack of your opponent will kill your fighters. So when you roll a crit, hooray, is something unexpected. <laughs> I have to say it is fascinating to hear the way you describe playing Spolkergard. We were just saying, you know, you can get outside of your country, your comfort zone, and start to see a completely new way of doing things. Now, I'm, I'm definitely a hold objective enthusiast, and I love winning the game with move actions, but I don't think I've ever deliberately done a longboard as the sepulchral guard, so I'm definitely going to steal that and, and try and innovate with it, especially in Nemesis, because I'm a big fan of hold objectives, and I do think that sepulchral guard are underrated in Nemesis. I'm looking at your deck here, and it's a very, very interesting deck, and to go back to my Inspiration Strikes topic, this is a perfect example of this deck breaks the cardinal rules that, that I often emphatically assert on new players when they ask me about deck building. So can you, can you walk me through your decision, not just for the plot card, but I see in here you have 13 objectives, 11 gambits, and 11 upgrades. Yes, indeed. I must say that last year, I think that every deck that I build was a deck with 13 objectives. I started with one deck of Soul Red, I think, and then every deck, every, every time 13 objectives. If the deck is fluid and you can score swords in a very fast way, you can score even your whole deck quite, quite easily. And having a 13 objectives let you discard even one or two of them if the match is not going very, very good. So I must say I will never probably do a deck with less than 13 objectives in the, in the future. And for, for 11 gambits and 11 upgrades, this is because I have two drawing tech cards in my gambit, uh, a packed ceiling blood and dual of wits. So I can have 22 power cards because I'm drawing a five. And most of the time I finish even my, my power, my power deck. And having uh, 11 upgrades, it's uh, very useful because I need uh, all of them. And most of them are one use, then they're going to be breaked after the, the use. So that's why I play a lot of cards. I want to talk about, maybe we'll talk about your surges first and we'll work through that objective deck. So of course you've got 13 in there. And we've discussed, I think, already that you've chosen Fearsome Fortress for your plot card. So the surges here are To the Walls, Battle Without End, Land of the Dead, They Keep Coming, Undying Watchmen, and Devoted Offerings. So the first thing that sticks out, obviously, is you've taken four of the faction surges here. How did you feel 
the four performed? And would you potentially swap any of them out in light of, let's say, the release of the Malevolent Masks deck? Uh, after the tournament, I was thinking uh, to change maybe one surge or something, but uh, I think that uh, their faction surges and their faction cards are very good. I think that Sepulchre God can be very good in Nemesis, indeed. I like their surges because they you raise, you raise warriors and then you are rewarded for that. And obviously your opponent will kill your fighters because if he don't kill your fighters, you can control the whole board and then you won the game. So he need to kill the fighters. You need to raise the warriors because you need warriors and for not let your opponent score other objective, like for example, two warriors out of action or the same number, number of warrior out of action as the number of the round. So. Raising uh, people, it's a win-win situation. Scoring uh, surges and try to not your opponent to score other objectives. And devoted offering uh, is very easy because you have two cards to draw and 11 gambits, so it's uh, easy to score. And to the walls is a good way to start the match because uh, you have seven warriors. 19% of the time your opponent will force to start. Uh, because they don't want to leave it last activation. And then to the walls is uh, an easy search to score at the beginning of the game. Most of the time, I mulligan to look for this because it's one uh, automatic glory to start, even if there are two objectives in the middle of the field, because you can double move two warriors with the warden. And then after the first glory, you can play some equipment and then your, your game is starting. And that's one of the reasons why we choose Fuse uh, of Fortress, uh, uh, not only for the additional feature token, but for objectives and for one equipment in particular. Very, very well explained. Can I ask on the subject of Fearsome Fortress, because this is a plot I've been using a lot recently in my Nemesis prep, how often do you put that token down as a block text compared to a cover token? Do you use it to choke off part of the board so your opponent can't come in or do you just take the defensive buff and the extra token for conquer domain this is really a good question because i put the cover token 99 percent of the times and i put the block decks only in the last two games of the final because i needed to change my game plan because i was playing against one of my teammates and we know exactly the deck each other deck so I need to do something different to shake the game. And then I, I, I position the block X. But I think after these two games, uh, I can say that uh, it's an interesting uh, alternative. Yeah, you're losing uh, uh, one point of Conqueror Domain and uh, Dark Inversion might be less powerful, but it could be an interesting uh, option because playing the board uh, offset and putting uh, uh, the blocked X uh, in uh, one of the four uh, axes in the middle of the board can uh, make uh, your uh, board very safe uh, and uh, at least for the first uh, for the first turn. And uh, I think that in the future I will uh, do it uh, more. And actually, a follow-up on that question that I had was: How often are you placing that additional feature token? in enemy territory versus in your own territory? Like, are you relying a little bit on the Dark Inversion to score things like the Undying Watchman? Or are you 
leaning more towards putting that on your side to make it safer for the conquered domain score? It depends also from my opponent because I have also Tender Prize in my deck. So sometimes switching the token with the cover is an easy way to score claim the prize, but sometimes you need also the feature token in a good position in the opponent territory to score all the objective that requires to control one objective in the uh, other opponent territory. So it depends from the game. For sure, I will always um, put the um, blocked X on the, on the middle line because that's a better positioning for, for it, because it, it blocks a lot of movement. And I don't think that uh, it will be a good idea to put the blocked X in my territory or in my opponent territory for this reason. That's a good segue to your end phases, actually, which again, I'll just read them off for the listeners. We have Supremacy, Forbidden Ground, Conquered Domain, Stockpile, Claim the Prize, Lay Claim to It All, and retake what is ours. I do want to observe something here, again, for listeners who may not know these cards as well. That is four end phases worth three glory apiece. Conquered Domain, which is probably going to be worth two and maybe three sometimes. But most notably, not one, not two, but three supremacies. So what was your thought process in choosing to go for what I'm calling the supreme supremacy, if you will? Yeah, the main the main goal is to position on feature tokens. When you, as we can see later, there is a lot of pushes and other stuff in the deck. So when you are on feature token, you don't mind if your opponent kill you because you can raise and then push again on the Odin token. So uh, staying on three feature token. It's not impossible. I said it's like playing a chess. So you have your strategy, you know what to do. And the best way to control at least three is to try to reach one of the protest objective on the opponent's territory. And uh, you have two bonus to the movement in the deck. So you can run with some of your skellies and control these, these objectives. And then you are in a safe position because if your opponent come back and try to kill you, then your your field is safer. So it's it's a mind game between you and your your opponent, starting from the deployment, because most of the times my opponents were shocked when I played the long war. At the beginning, they think that I'm going to attack sometimes, but without attacking at all, even some objectives for my opponent become impossible to score. For example, the Savage have won, the Crimson Court have won, and most warband have um, objectives that requires that I'm going to attack and I'm not going to attack at all. I'm just want to make my supremacy of supremacy <laughs> every, every, every game. Yeah. So as you kind of hinted at there, you need a lot of tools to make that supremacies more reliable. You're holding three is definitely a big ask to be doing consistently throughout the game. So you've definitely taken looks like appropriate card support here. So we'll go into your gambits. We have already touched on the two draw gambits. So you've got Duel of Wits and a Pact Sealed in Blood in there, which makes perfect sense with your overall game plan to draw through your deck, especially the Pact Sealed in Blood. For those who don't know, if you hold three objectives, you draw three cards while dealing one damage to one of those fighters holding an objective. But I think everything else in the deck, as far as the gambits just that I'm looking at here, kind of support your hold game plan. You've got Confusion, Dark Inversion, Drifting Tides, 
We've got the terrifying screams within 2x's 1x distraction. Uh, slinking in there and tread the path can all help you with supporting that hold objective gameplay. The big thing that we haven't seen quite as often recently, and I'd love to hear, you've used one of your three R slots on Daylight Robbery. How did Daylight Robbery perform for you throughout the tournament? Yeah, it's it's a nasty card, the Daylight Robbery. And sometimes you win the game because of Daylight Robbery. Not during this tournament, but sometimes happened in the past. And it's the card that uh, maybe you are you have not scored any, nothing, <clears throat> but you have the Daylight Robbery in your hand. Your opponent kill one of your fighters and maybe score a sword, then two glory. Uh, he cannot spend uh, the two glory. Uh, he can only spend one. And then I will try to steal your other glory to start my my game. So I never, I never build uh, a deck like this without uh, Daylight Robbery uh, because I'm bleeding glory and I could uh, need uh, one more glory that became two glory difference at the end with that kind of card. And then it's like forcing my opponent in the second and in the third game in spending a glory in a very fast way because he knows that I have Daylight Robbery in my hands. And then maybe I can force you to spend glory in a fast way and maybe making mistakes or choices that may not, might not be the best choice at the end. That's a great explanation. And I got to say, I, I love this deck. In case that wasn't clear before, I, I love everything this deck is trying to do. And it really, it, it's a lot of new cards, but it reminds me of season one and two, especially season one, Spoko Guard doing things with keys and supremacy. And it's just great to see that. And it's, I know it's a bit of a coin flip negative play experience card, but it's its great to see Daylight Robbery coming out and, and really doing its job to, to fix that bleed and put some pressure on your opponent to spend that glory, even though Escalation is not around anymore. <laughs> yes. But with that said, let's, let's turn to the upgrades. So you have, and you've mentioned pushes already, Quickening Greaves, Bonds of Death, Darkwater Anchor, Shoulder Charge, Bold Engineer, Frightening Speed, No Vitals, Frostworm Cloak, Ancient Commander, Petitioner's Oath, and the Warden Commands. Now, the first thing I do want to point out is you've got quite a lot of extra raise tech in there. You have the upgrade to let the Warden raise two fighters at once, and you have not one but two upgrades that'll let you just bring a Petitioner right back without spending an action to get them or even one of your cards. Was that a, a deliberate part of your strategy to mitigate the bleed and kind of give your opponent no good choices if they try to farm the petitioners? Yes, there are uh, two or three reasons for for that. The first is that I need the uh, fighters and uh, automatic uh, resurrection is good because I can move with the following action, the, the, the raised fighter. The second reason is to let my opponent not score some cards, as I told, for two, two fighters, two fighters out of action, one, two, three fighters out of action, and stuff like this. And the third is that it might happen that the warden dies, and then I need the most card of possible to erase fighters, even when the warden is out of action. That's why the reason of most of these cards. And for the double resurrection, I didn't use it a lot in the tournament. I probably used it twice, but one of these two was the winning move of the tournament. 
And the other, I think that was a situation where I know that the warden is going to die in the next activation. So, okay, let's raise, let's raise two people for the following activation <laughs> and let the warden die. <laughs> now, that's a really interesting. We haven't, I feel like most people haven't gone for the petitioner raises. I think the quote unquote rule of thumb was the petitioners die and you leave them dead and then you just keep raising the other three. Uh, but it's nice to see somebody making some use out of the petitioner play uh, with the resurrections and specifically, like you mentioned, countering uh, what people would be familiar with as chill the grave and rapid strike, which are a very popular uh, combination in championship right now. I really like the essentially counter play that you've put into the deck there for what's more meta. Uh, one other thing I, I wanted to talk about, and you can speak to this as, of course, Daniel, is you've got both bold engineer and drifting tides we've talked about to move objective tokens. Uh, and then I assume with the resurrections coming onto the starting hexes, that was a big part of helping you hold three consistently throughout the course of the game. Yeah, you're right, especially for Drifting Tides. But I must say that during the tournament, most of the times I used two cards for moving a feature token in my opponent territory because I needed for score stuff. But obviously, when you have this card in your deck, you think also on, okay, I can move the token in my territory, and then the token now is on a starting X, and every time I raise a fighter, the fighter is in position. So that's why, in my opinion, this kind of deck is 100% better with Fearsome Fortress and not with the Void Construct, because Bold Engineer is the best card not only moving token, but also bonus to the movement. So when you have a skeleton running for five, because he's inspired, it's a really uh, nasty situation for your, for your opponent. Then controlling the board, manipulating the board, moving token is what this deck uh, needs to do. So I, I am curious, did you take any attack actions in the whole tournament? Or did you get away with never doing any? Three or four, I think, maybe four. And, and I killed two fighters, I think. And one was the leader of the Sirenai Warden. And I, I needed because he, he just killed my warden. And then I had to take revenge. And then I charged him with the champion for two damage and for the, with the harvester for two other damage. And only three or four times in, during the tournament, really, because I don't need it. I don't want my opponent to score stuff or to risk things like counterpunch attack cards like, like these, for example, or chosen, they might have one uh, and so on. And uh, I don't want to rely on, on dices this time. And I, I love the fact that you don't have many attack actions planned. You don't have either Great Strength or Glory Seeker in this deck, which are considered to be kind of two staples in the championship metagame. And just to kind of round out the deck as a commentary, I think George and I can probably agree on this. It's very validating to see somebody come out and do well with a deck like this, which I think would be considered kind of uncommon. Everybody's always talking about how championship filters down to the same 20, 30 cards, whatever the case might be. Everybody's got great strength in their deck. Uh, and then we see you go out and perform obviously very well, winning the Austrian Masters Tournament with a deck that has no great strength, has no Glory Seeker, is taking strange cards like Shoulder Charge. And I just, I'm thrilled that you've won. I'm thrilled to look at this deck and I'm excited to get into your results now. So with that kind of transition, let's get into your first opponent of the tournament. Who were they playing? What was the matchup like? And what were some of your key, key moments in those games? 
Yeah, the first game, it's uh, a very funny story because I, I was sick the previous week of the tournament. And during the New Year's Eve, I was at home for that reason. And I played some games against Mr. Bombardi. This that he came on Discord, that he was sick at home at 12. And I was sure, and he's from, from Vienna, that I was sure that in the first game I will play it against him. And this happened. And he was joking, oh, my romantic day, because we played on the, on the URC. <laughs> and then we played, we played against in the first, in the first game. But we were both using a different warband than our playtester. So it was a totally new game. He was playing the New Slanesh uh, Warband with the Impetus Plot. Unluckily for him, playing against a three-man Warband is one of the best pairing for me because he can't control the board, kill many of my fighters, and try to kill the Warden at the same time. Too many things uh, to do for just the three warriors. He was a bit surprised of my deck. and The first game was something like 21 to 5 because it didn't uh, realize what's happening, as always happens in the first game. And uh, the second was more close, but I think that it was almost impossible for him to do something better, honestly, because as I said, three fighters, he can't steal the tokens from me. He can't kill off my fighters. Uh, it's very difficult for, for him. So I think that he played the, the better that he can, but it's, it was 90%, 10% pairing, I think. So a good start for, for sure. And did you notice that pattern of players just kind of being very befuddled? What What is happening? Why does he have 15 glory? Yeah, as, as I said, this deck is really a, a, a mind experience. And uh, most of uh, the other Sepulchre Guard decks, because there was uh, another player with Sepulchre Guard, but it was a, a mixed deck, uh, controlling, uh, attacking a bit, so more classic, classic styles. And a lot of people get struggled of this, of this tactic. So it was a good tournament for me also for that, that reason. Now the secret is outside. So people know so what they are going to be facing it. Well, if anyone else duplicates your uh, success or if they just tech to try to beat it. Yeah, but this is a part of the game. We, we constantly take a look at other players' deck. And we, we try to be one step in advance. So you play something, okay, but after you want something with that deck, you know that now you have to think something better because obviously as every one of us do, we take a look at other decks, then we try these decks. If the deck is strong, you are going to play it the next tournament. And then you have to think about, okay, now I want with this deck. How can I fight against uh, this deck uh, in the future? And, and that's why I love this game because it's always, uh, it's always new. One release, uh, one new round of limitation, one new warband. And every two, three months, everything is shaken. And it's not like playing other games that, okay, one combination is broken. And for a whole year, this is the uh, number one warband, number one army. And uh, you cannot do anything better than this. Whatever in other words is evolving every every month and every week. Yeah, absolutely. I think you start to see the counter meta stuff pop up and certainly the strong things will still rise towards the top, but we'll have, for example, a nemesis we've seen with the release of Void Curse Thralls, something finally stepped up to challenge the kind of FLM dominance that was we were seeing immediately after the release. And while they were still good, seeing that counter play evolve over time has been really enjoyable to watch. And I think Speaking for both George and myself, one of our favorite things to try and pioneer 
is when something's good, how do we counterplay that and deny it from doing what it wants to do? So kudos to you for coming up with something kind of interesting and different to come out against a, what I think predominantly I would say is a very aggro-leaning meta in championship right now, mostly due to the pairing, like we mentioned, of Rapid Strike and Chill of the Grave as two really good staple cards for taking enemy fighters out of action. Uh, and of course, during the free far leading in towards the end of last year, Ping was everywhere as well to support that game plan. So it's nice to see kind of some fresh life breathed into the championship form. Another thing that I want to say is that we uh, dropped this deck uh, for a while and we stopped uh, playing it because of the Avalanche. Because with the Avalanche, uh, like it was, obviously uh, it was an impossible uh, deck to play. Because in the first round, all of your fighters with seven of your fighters with one wound left and two, three of them might be dead in the first activation with beings attacks. It was a deck dead and then raised again, like, like the fighters. <laughs> Very thematic. Uh, exactly. Speaking of again, let's get into your round two matchup. What do you got on tap for your second game? In my second game, I played against the old Slanish Warband. So the new Slanish Warband in the first and the old one in the second. And this time with the Void Curse plot, it was uh, a balanced deck like a flex counterpunch. So trying to control tokens, but with some cards to punish fighters for trying to go in their territory and try to kill and attack the cow, the leader and so on. And uh, it's a nice uh, idea. It's a nice deck. But unluckily for him, again, I have more cards, more tools than him to control the board push warriors, move tokens, and uh, it's impossible for him to inspire against me. It's very difficult for him to inspire in general because their inspired condition is very difficult, but against him is very impossible. So no chance to have better statistics for attacking and things uh, like that. And it was a warband with the Void Curse plot. And uh, the Void Cruise plot is one of the reasons why I'm still playing Shoulder Charge, because Shoulder Charge is not driven back, it's a push. So it's one of the fewer way, one of the only way to push the Void Cruise fighter from an objective and, and maybe try to reach that objective with uh, a push later or with some other, some other cards. And I think that in this game, uh, it was one of my few attack. It was against the, the archer, Asdu, uh, because I needed to kill him to go on that token. Usually Asdu always dies and in these games as well. And so I, this is one of my fighters killed uh, in the, probably the only two were the leader of the Sirenite Warband later and the Asdu in this, in this match. But it was also a very good pairing for me because as I told you, I have more cards, more tools than him to control the board and more glory to score in my deck. So I won 2-0 against in this, in this situation. And after the second game, I am for, for game one and zero or less and with a very big glory difference. So it just sounds like you were really uniquely poised to take on people who didn't expect this at all. You, you brought something completely innovative and we've talked about that a lot already, but again, I, I really like this deck and I really like to see a strategy like this do well. Do you feel like because you were trying to hold more than him, that kind of, you just could do his game plan better and he couldn't catch up with the ceiling at all? Like there was, was there anything at any point in that round where you thought maybe he had a way back in or it just 
no chance. I think that unlucky for him, he has no no chance. Obviously, that game for him is better than the New Zealandish Warban because he can score, for example, controlling two or everyone has charge or move. So he can score some passing glory even without killing my fighters or controlling my tokens. But it was uh, really, 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 really hard for him. Because with the bold engineer and the shoulder charge, uh, drifting tides, uh, I can, uh, even the void course abilities, the void course cards are less uh, good than in other, in other matches because I don't care about your double movement. I don't care about that you are moving on a feature token after my movement because I don't want feature token uncovered by my warriors. So, okay, let's move, but you are not going to reach my objective tokens because they, when I move my fighters is to go on that objective tokens and I'm not letting you come on, on this. So I think that even in this case, it's not 19%, uh, 10% game, but uh, probably at least 75, uh, 25. So I must say that I was lucky in the first two pairings. Well, with that said, who was your next opponent and what was round three like? The third game was against uh, Sirenite, uh with Impetus plot again. It was a 15 years old guy, but a very, very good player. He's also on Discord. He was third in the, uh, at the end of the tournament. His name is Michael, if I remember good, because I'm terrible for, for names. But he's a very, very good player, very fast. And this is a thing that I like it because, um, I think that even playing fast and uh, having a faster decision, it's a, a key for a success in this game. And sometimes I think that it's not fair if I have to play very, very, very fast to have time for the third game while my opponent is using uh, two thirds of the, of the time. And this is not the case of Michael because he's really, really fast player and uh, he's playing very good for their, for their age. And I am, I think that he can be one of the best players in Europe in the future because if he's so good at 15 years old, he can only grow and play even better in the, in the future. Then I won the roll off for the first match. And when I decide to longboard him, he says, okay, this is a strange because playing longboard with Sirenai is what usually the Sirenai player wants to do. So he was a little shocked by my decision, but as I told you, it was my strategy as well. I haven't played a lot of games against the Sirenai, so I wasn't sure about all the dangers and all the parries. I know the cars, I know the faction. Yeah, I know about the Hammer Tide and other stuff, but I don't have a lot of experience, like for example, against other, other Warband. So I try to do my job and try to play my match in a normal way, taking a look at uh, what my opponent is playing, what my opponent is trying to score for the following games. I won the first in a quite easy way. He tried to kill me and he tried to force me to move the Warband and as many times as possible. That's why I was saying that he's a very good player. But I think I managed, I managed it well. In the second game, he decided to play longboard again. And he scored more objectives than in the first, because now he knows my play, my way to play. Uh, he knows what to do and so on. But I won the second, the second as well. And uh, he never killed the Warden in these two games. So for me, when the Warden is safer for all the match, it's easy really better for me in this situation. 
but I was starting getting a bit tired because six games, every time thinking, overthinking that I don't want to waste my activation. I need to not uh, do anything bad. So it's really mind, mind blowing. And I was starting getting a bit tired, mentally, mentally tired. But at the end of the third game, 6-1 and 0 loss, so I, I did my job and I was already qualified for, for the top 8. And so it's, it was a nice, a nice start. And I want to congratulate myself once more with Michael because I was very impressed because I don't think that I was in other games good as in their age. Yeah, sounds like you had at least a really good day one, certainly 6-0, and very impressive. And then we've talked about, of course, the two Slanesh matchups you had beforehand. Did you feel like there was anything particular about the Sirenai matchup that was a little more difficult at all? Uh, or was it more just his kind of skill as a pilot was keeping the games closer? No, I think that uh, the game was really more difficult than the previous two. It's very interesting, the deck of Michael. And I think that they can try to play with maybe one or two changes in the future. Because probably I underestimated Serenai in general. And it's not only a hammer tight. And for special, the two small guys, one with Grievous and one with the Shizing attack, sometimes with a great strength or something like this can, can become very, very dangerous. And I like some of their faction objectives, some of their faction cards. It was an interesting game, and I will play Serena in the future for for a while, for sure, because it's a kind of game that I usually play aggro, so this is something different for me. And, and that kind of style, playing quite aggro, but with a moderating way to play it, I I like it. I, I really like it. And I, it was not with Impetus, I was wrong. It was with White Crustral, now I remember it well. Because sometimes with the double movement, uh, it was a threat, uh, especially for the movement uh, that you have to finish near one other fighter. A very, a very nice deck. So we'll steal ideas from, from that deck. Well, just as people will be stealing ideas from your deck, I think. And <laughs> I will be stealing from both. So I can be the magpie here. It's the deal. When you were preparing for this, what was the matchup you were most scared of going in? The most scared Warben for this deck, in my opinion, the Nya Spirit Pack is one of the most feared Warben for me because of the Shizing attack. They are fast and they, you can build them to try to knock the opponent control the tokens. So I was feared of that Warben and no one was take that Warben in Vienna. So I was lucky for that reason. And one other Warband that I might fear a bit, other, other Warband controlling the territory, for example, Greenwatch. Greenwatch with Confusion as well, Drifting Tides as well. And he, he can try to maybe kill fighters uh, by themselves with a little X and then resurrect uh, on my territory and then Confusion my fighters. Or I play Drifting Tides, but uh, he had Drifting Tides as well. And then my Drifting Tides goes away. Uh, these two warbands were the one that I most fear. I don't fear a lot Domitan and Ephilim. That might be strange, but I know that I can outscore uh, them. As I told you, three-man warband are not difficult to play against for this kind uh, of deck. And uh, Ephilim is not a three-fighter warband. 
but he's not uh, so hard to play as Domitan. I, I was not scared about this two warban that everyone is scared about. Maybe I was scared of some unpopular choices like Greenwatch or another mirror match, for example, another mirror match with my same cards. It could be difficult. No, that's definitely understandable. I always dislike mirror matches. And so that's part of why I try so very hard to innovate. I do think it's it's interesting that you've identified kind of multiple weaknesses here. Just to, to clarify, you're kind of, you're saying that you're afraid of extremely fast, extremely hard committed aggro, but you're also afraid of someone kind of doing the same thing you're doing and maybe doing it better. And that's kind of a, I think, a healthy place from a balance perspective for this to be. And obviously you went, you did very well, and you had some games where you just shut your opponents out answers do exist. You just did a very good job of kind of reading the meta and coming in with something that people were not expecting, were not prepared for, and didn't even know what they were dealing with until it's already done its thing once and you're up by a game. Exactly. Yeah. Because everyone is always thinking about the first two or three warband, maybe top tier, S tier. I always try to play uh, a tournament something that is powerful because obviously I want, I try to win the tournament. I want to win the tournament, but uh, I always try to play something that is not uh, S tier, maybe just a bit below and uh, try to build my, my deck, my opportunity, my situation. For example, I never played in championship Domitan or Eflin the last year. But now with the, the new limitation, I think that I will try to build some deck in the future because now it's more challenging and now it's not okay, the Warband that everyone plays and so on, so on. I think that they are very good the same, so they are not uh, weak, obviously, but now they are more challenging and maybe people are not going to be focused only on these two Warband and now it's time to try to use it and maybe use something different, some different cards, some different strategies. There is a space for innovation. Yeah, I'd love to echo that. I think the championship meta is definitely in a healthier place now where if there's a warband that you felt like was getting choked out a little bit towards the end of last year just by the prevalence of Ping and Domitan and Ephilim in particular. Certainly now there's more room to grow with something like what you brought, of course, uh, as well as kind of taking new new spins on those warbands instead of just sitting back and pinging people to death maybe now there's a different angle to take that people might not be expecting you to try and execute on after the recent changes not to get too far segued we should push ahead into your top eight so obviously you've gone three and oh in your day one so i assume you were either close to or the top seed going into the top eight is that correct at the, at the end of the third game, I was automatically in the top eight, even if there was another another match for closing the, the day one. The first game should be against uh, one of my teammates, Alessandro, and we were first and second with no loss, so automatically qualified for the top eight. And we didn't want to play against for almost the reason of no wasting strategies, no wasting uh, luck uh, and so on. And so we were not eliminating anyone. And we said uh, to the TO that we are going to have a draw. It's not uh, important, this game for us. We decided to be honest uh, and not to fake playing uh, like resting uh, and then uh, having a draw at the end. And then we can even rest of it. In this way, we were still taking a risk because if the first rider player that was at the following table win the game, then we finished second and third. 
and we could play against in the semifinal. If we have decided to play instead, we could, we could have been sure to finish first and second or first and third. And we could meet in the second day or in the final, but it wasn't the strategy. So we don't care about that. We just didn't want to play, didn't want to ruin our strategy because I know the deck of my opponent and uh, he knows the deck of my opponent. In Poland, uh, I was playing X-Pain Hunter and he was playing Sepulchral Guard. So we were shifting decks. So it's like, okay. Take a beer, rest a bit, and let's do it together. And at the end, the first rider player lose. So we finish first and second. The following day, the TO decide to make, he changes their mind. He decide to make random pairings. But okay, it's fine. We don't care. Let's do it. We're we are not doing this for knowing our opponent because we were drawing at the beginning of the game. So all the other players still have to finish their matches. But we were lucky because with a random player, we, we were put in two different spots of the, of the table. So as it was from the beginning, we are not going to meet against it until the final, until the eventually final. So we were lucky in this decision. It was a prize for our honesty, I think. <laughs> so within that random pairing, then who was your first game in the top eight cut? My first game in the top eight was against Exile Dead with Fearsome Fortress. And I think that I underestimated this, this match. And playing my deck at that point in the tournament is more difficult because everyone is talking about it. So no more surprises. And I won the first game with a good glory difference. Always playing longboard, try to defend the, the warden and the same strategy as before. But then my, my opponent changed the way that he was playing in the second game. And he tried to occupy all the feature tokens and tried to occupy tokens uh, before taking attacks. So that was very difficult for me. I didn't score a lot of objective in the second game. And then I suffered my, my first loss of the tournament. And uh, I hadn't good feelings about the third because I was thinking if he plays in the same way, I think I'm going to lose. And that's something similar when I talk about the, the Green Watch. Uh, it was a Pearson Fortress deck. So with some cards like me, for example, the moving objective cards. So it was a really difficult, difficult game. It was a swarm warband like mine. Not very, not very easy. And he won the roll He played Longboard again and he built a zombie wall. So it was impossible for me to go through them and reach the objectives that they need to take. And at the end, I won only for one or two glory and only because of one card that is confusion. Because at the good, at the good time, I use confusion. And then one of my skeleton sprinters moving five run to the end of the board of the zombie player and then successfully reach the end of the board and one token. And then he sits on that token for the whole, for the whole game, going in garden, going, having a dark water anchor. So, and then he won for that, for that reason, only for confusion, because the, the zombie wall was impossible for me to, to, to go over. And, but with the confusion played at a good time, it was possible for me. And then running away from five, with a movement of five in a safe position was the key for the for the victory. I just want to say it's very interesting to hear about Exile Dead versus Spokelgard as a thematic uh, match, zombies versus skeletons. 
And I think I speak for everyone here at Path to Glory when I say that we are very glad the skeletons prevailed, except for Zach. But he likes death anyway, so Nagash still won. <laughs> it was a Nagash mirror match, uh, Nagash Derby. It was a, a very good player as well. He, he learned during the game because uh, the, first, uh, the first game he, he played in a average way, but then he, he learned from my warband, he learned from my style of play, he learned from my objectives. And then he played a totally different second and third game. And that was very difficult for me. But shout out to him because he did really, really well. Kudos to you for winning the Nagash mirror there and pushing into, I guess, what would be the semifinal match. Who did you find waiting for you there? In the semifinal, I played against the Michael with uh, Cyberknight. So it was like uh, a revenge match. In the first game, I won the roll-off, so we play longboard again. And then the Tio passed by and say, oh, I always play longboard on this on this table <laughs> because it was something like 90% of the time playing longboard. And so, same old shit as before. It's an automatic pilot for me now. And the match on the longboard was in my favor. Quite, quite good for me. But the second was very tough because he decided to play face-to-face. Usually the Sirenai play longboard, but as I said, he's a good player and he learned from uh, every game. And he realized that playing longboard is not good for him in this particular match. So he decided to play face-to-face. Good choice for him because he killed my warden at the beginning of the second round. And and now I needed to do something different as well. And I charged the Sirenite leader, as I told at the beginning of the interview. I cannot leave him with four fighters, with four threats to my remaining fighters, especially the one with Hammertide on my field, ready to kill Petitioner into activation. And then I needed to kill the Sirenite leader. And if I didn't kill him, I think that I lost the game. But everything after, after that went fine. I think I won the game thanks to the three racing cars, the two equipments and the gambit, because with the warden off for most of the game, I raised the petitioner and the champion with these cards. And at the end of the game, I had only three fighters on the board, but enough to score supremacy and stuff like that and to win for a couple of, of glories. So it's all the, the whole strategy of the deck is to try to not lose automatically, even if the warden is going to die. And I think that it works. And this is for sure one of the maps where I needed more the three resurrection card outside of the, the warden ability. So just on the note of the repeated longboards before we move on to your next match, I was very curious. Did you ever find one of your opponents longboarding you before they knew that that was what you wanted? Probably the Sirenai in the first... No, in the Sirenai, I, I won the roll-off. So I think never, because in this kind of situation, for example, Excel Dad, Sirenai, I always won the, the first roll-off. And that was a pity, because if you lose the, the roll-off and then the, the opponent forces you to play longboard, thinking that it's worst for, for you, then you can take advantage of this situation. But when we use this deck in Poland at the Alliance tournament, sometimes sometimes happen. So it's um, another good uh, another good strategy, another tool in the toolbox uh, of this deck. The art of faking things as they are not. All right. Well, 
But after that uh, kind of revenge match, you're on to the finals, I take it, at this point, right? So who are you meeting in the finals of this tournament? In the final, I'm going to finally play against Alessandro, one of my teammates, the one of the draw of the previous, of the previous day. And he's going to play with X-Pain Hunters, with Impetus. And this time, we have to play with Cannot Draw, obviously. And we know every card in each other deck. It's worse than a mirror game. It's really like playing chess against. I lost the first roll off. He deployed me face to face in the first game. And I lost very bad leaps. He drew the nays in the first hand and he kills me with rigid four fighters during the, the whole game using the ability of the nails to not uh, raising it anymore. And I think that he played really better than me in the first in the first game. And I was thinking, okay, I need to change something to do something new now because I cannot play the way that I used to play because he knows exactly what I'm doing. And then in the second game, I decide to play offset. And then I deploy a uh, blocked X instead of the cover one to close a bit more my territory for the first round. In this way, as we say uh, in the beginning, I'm renouncing to one glory for a conquered domain and Dark Invasion is less powerful, but it was a good strategy in the end because I won the second game with four or five glory difference, I think. And then we are coming to the final match of the tournament. I won the roll-off again, and that's very important. And then I use the same strategy, but now my opponent know that, and then he chooses the board thinking about uh, that. The game was very exciting with no particular luck from one of the other side. And at the beginning of my last activation, I'm losing by five glories. I'm, I'm, I'm remaining only the warden and the champion on the field. The champion is on a token in my opponent territory with the dark water anchor, so quite safe. And in my hand, as objective, I have Forbidden Ground, Supremacy, and Lay to Claim It All. So I need to control three tokens and one in my opponent territory. But at the beginning of my last activation, I have only two fighters on, on the field and only one on another token. And so I have only one strategy to try to score everything. I raised two warriors with the Warband's command. The first of them was the one with Gold Engineer. So at the end of the activation, I took a feature token and then I'm controlling two. And then it's the last activation of Alessandro. He need to kill the champion with the, with the Darkwater Anchor, but he can kill the champion only with a, a crit because he had Grievous. He hit me, but he didn't crit. So the champion stay on the objective, but I'm still controlling two. And then I decide to pull out the ace from my sleeve because I had quickening grips in my hand from the beginning of the game. I was waiting for the right time to play it. I played it now on the other warrior that I have already raised in the previous activation. And now I'm controlling three objectives because of the quickening grips moves at the, at the end of the, of the round. And then I score all the seven glory in my hand. My opponent just scored two, and then I won for controlling more feature tokens than him. The final match was 23 to 23. I had to score all my deck to, to win the, to win the game and only for controlling more objective tokens than, than him. What a finish, man. Those are the games you live for when it comes down to the wire, when it's two skilled players counterplaying and counter counterplaying and winning it on the tiebreaker. Again, congrats to you. Kudos to you. And congrats to your, your teammate. 
for also, I'm sure, playing his heart out. And sometimes it's dice. You know, I'm sure that we could be interviewing him if he did crit, right? But it's still excellent <laughs> play yeah. from both of you and, and really, really an exciting, exciting game to hear narrated. Thank you. Thank you that very much, man. me as well. Very well played to both of you guys. And I was excited to see that this was the final. I was kind of following along on Discord as I was going and seeing you kind of go through with Spoke Regard was one of my favorite war bands, of course, fun to watch. And then I see you're playing Hexbane in the final table, which I've generally considered to be a bad matchup for the reason you mentioned of the Cold Iron Nails denying your resurrection. So I was excited to see kind of how that matchup went. Did you feel like there was something outside of the nails that made that so particularly, you know, close those games? Or was there something besides that? The nails and the shiting ability of Bridget and the dogs, because sometimes it's better to put the dogs on tokens than using for support. And that is very bad for me because with only a, a move, with a single move, the X-Pen player can put two fighters on two tokens. And for that reason, he tried to start every round that he can to occupy tokens. And that's where cards like Destruction, the Confusion, and Drifting Tides are very, very important. I think that if I had not this kind of game plan, but maybe a mixed game plan between killing and controlling, I wouldn't have so many cards to control and move objectives that I needed for this kind of particular, particular game. Even if, when I build a deck for other warbands, I usually try to take away, decide what I'm going to do with this deck, and then put all the cards that I need for that particular strategy, because I want at least three or four cards for the same situation that I have to, to cover, because I don't want to whine for, okay, I, I don't have this particular card in my hands, or I, I have only once and I already use it, so... I want to be sure of what I'm doing. I want to build a strong uh, strategy and try to rely less of possible on lucky in drawing, uh, lucky in dices. Uh, you cannot win every game. Sometimes you find someone better than you. Sometimes you roll bad. Sometimes you draw bad. But I think that drawing deck in this way is a good thing for winning more matches as possible. I think that's definitely something we've kind of echoed here on Path to Glory previously is the competitive players will often gravitate towards consistency, right? And dice are the least consistent variable in the game that we have available. So anything that you can do in your deck building up front to mitigate the impact of dice on the results, I think definitely worked in your favor in this instance and is something that a lot of people will be trying to emulate both in championship and nemesis going forward. But again, Kudos to you and really great to see a kind of refreshing new take on a deck, being able to go out there and, and take an event and hopefully show people what championship still has to offer. It sounds like it was a great event, a lot of different war bands that you ran into along the way. So hopefully that can only continue to grow the championship scene further going forward. So with that, I guess that brings us to the end of our episode here. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss about the tournament, the players that you met, uh, anything before we sign off here, Daniel? I just want to say thank you again to your to organizer, to all of my opponents, because it was a really uh, good event. And it's wonderful to have this kind of event in, uh, in Europe, not only in Italy. Everyone take care of us, even if we had some 
trouble in finding an accommodation. We were suggesting some places where to stay, where to eat. So it's, you know, in the podcast, you, you talk a lot about building a community and this is a community bigger than a single, than a single country. It's wonderful to be a part of it. And I want just to remember everyone and to invite even people from the States to the World Team Championship that uh, would be in Barca from the 24 to the 26th of May. And maybe this could be an opportunity even from people from the States, from Canada and so on to be a part of the European community and to play against different people. So we, we are waiting for you. Great shout out. I don't know, is it, do you, George, are you aware of anybody who's organizing the American team for the event? I'm not right now. I've seen some discussion on it. I'm not sure. I don't believe any Americans went last year. I wanted to go, but it's, it's just so hard to fit in the travel. I'll have to look into it. I would love to get out there and meet people in person that I've only discussed the game with online. And I love every time I do get to travel to Europe. So one of these years it'll happen. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Daniel. It was a pleasure having you on. I love talking about your deck, about your tournament experience, and I'm always happy to talk some championship gameplay. So very glad we were able to get you on today. We appreciate your time in joining us. With that, we'll wrap up the episode. Thank you all very much for listening. Again, we appreciate all the likes and follows on Spotify, and we are trying to push that 100 five-star rating goal on Spotify. So if you like the content and want to see more, please go ahead and rate us on there. And thank you very much again, and best of luck on your path to glory.